pleasure to introduce our speaker for today. Stephen Vita is an associate professor of history at the University of Oregon and an academic expert in Pacific Northwest history, labor history, and environmental history. His research specifically explores the history of workers in the Northwest's timber industry and the ways rural communities have adapted to the region's changing economy. He's also researched and written about the history of forestry, rural protest movements, and the rise of the Northwest's militia movement. He's written for, he, he writes frequently uh, for the in general interest uh, publications. He's written for the Washington Post, The Guardian, Oregon Historical Quar Quarterly, and Conversation, among many others. If you go to his website, there's a very long list. Uh, Stephen Bita was a 2021 Oregon Humanities Center faculty research fellow during the height of the COVID pandemic. Uh, so our dealings with him were totally virtual during that time. Uh, the project he worked on as an OEC fellow was published as a monograph titled Strong Winds and Widowmakers, Workers, Nature, and Environmental Conflict in, in, the Pacific, Northwest, in Pacific Northwest Timber Country. Uh, it was published by uh, University of Illinois Press in 2022. He shares more about the book with us today. Please join me in welcoming Stephen Vita. Thank you so much, Paul, for that wonderful introduction. Um, and I want to begin today just with a brief reading, um, just for my acknowledgments, and I know it's customary at these talks to do the reading at the end, uh, and we'll get to that, but um, I just want to read this. Um, this project received the support of the Oregon Humanities Center and the Center for Environmental Futures. Their financial assistance was most welcomed, but perhaps even more valuable was their work in creating an interdisciplinary and collaborative climate at UL. Um, so I really mean that, you know, one of the, as many of you, you in this room know, one of the frustrating things about working in academia is you have all these colleagues and all these people doing wonderful research that you never get to hear about, um, especially for us historians who kind of work by ourselves, you know, locked in my office or sitting in the archives. Um, but thanks to the uh, OHC and organizations like it on campus, I actually get to get out of my office and, and hear about the great work other people are doing. And it, it's good for my own intellectual development, it helps spurs my creativity, and it's good for the university as well as the community. So um, a big thank you to the OHC and Paul and everyone doing great work. So, um, so yeah, um, as Paul said, I am here to tell you a little bit about my book, Strong Winds and Widowmakers, Workers, Nature, and Environmental Conflict in Pacific Northwest Timber Country. Um, so briefly, or to sum it up as simply as I can, this book argues that timber workers in the Northwest are and have long been environmentalists, and perhaps some of the region's best environmentalists. Um, now, if you're from a rural logging community, or if you work in the timber industry or have worked in the timber industry, that's probably a fairly non-controversial statement. Uh, years ago, when I was doing research for the book, uh, I called this... Uh, he was a former union president in Shelton, Washington. And I call him up asking to do an interview with him. Um, and I'm telling him about my book and what I'm working on. He's like, oh, well, what's your book about? I give him that line, you know, timber workers are, the, are, are environmentalists. And he goes, everyone knows that. No one's going to read your book. <laughs> uh, and I said, well, you know, in Shelton, Washington, there probably is a consensus that uh, timber workers are environmentalists. Uh, but where I live in Eugene or anywhere in the I-5 corridor, that is less accepted. Um, so if, if you count yourself among one of those people, you're from Eugene, Portland, Seattle, like I said, the I-5 corridor, uh, you might need some convincing, and I understand. And as a way of beginning to convince you, 
Um, I figured I'd tell you a little bit about how I came to this book project, and more specifically, how I came to this argument that timber workers are indeed environmentalists. Uh, so I grew up in suburban Chicago, which is a place that is both geographically and socioeconomically distant from Pacific Northwest timber country. Um, and when I was graduating high school and, you know, starting to pay attention to the news and the world outside of, you know, my little suburb, um, the Spotted Isle conflict, which if any of you are familiar with kind of the recent history of Oregon environmental politics, will know, will know quite well. Uh, the Spotted Isle conflict was coming to an end. I graduated high school in the late 90s, so that's kind of the last kind of throes of that conflict. And most of what I knew about Pacific Northwest timber workers came from reporting on that event. Really, images are, like these are the ones I had in my mind of loggers who are so desperate to hold onto their jobs, they don't care about the natural environment, nor do they care about the long-term ecological consequences of logging. That is what I believe, because that is what the media told me. Now, I'd like to say that my ideas shifted as a result of intense academic research and reading volumes of books. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, my thinking shifted in a far less academically rigorous setting. Uh, so I had the good fortune to go to graduate school at University of Washington in Seattle. Um, and what I'm supposed to say is that I chose that program because of exciting faculty and access to research materials. Um, but the truth of the matter is I chose to go to graduate school at UW because it would put me into close proximity to a really, a lot of good really rivers for fishing. And the majority of my life decisions have been made based on getting me closer to good places for fishing and hunting. I both fish and hunt, and that's how I make my life decisions. Um, so in my first couple years of graduate school, I per perhaps spent a little bit too much time fishing and not enough time reading in the archives. And I was spending places, or spending time in places like this. This is the Ho River on Washington's Olympic Peninsula, one of my favorite places in the world. And the Ho River, like a lot of the other rivers on the Olympic Peninsula, and like a lot of good salmon and steelhead rivers in the Pacific Northwest, happened to run through or nearby logging towns. And if you spend any amount of time on these rivers, as I was doing, you are going to run into your fair share of timber workers. Retired timber workers, active timber workers, on the weekends, they are all, all out there doing exactly what I was out there doing, fishing. And again, you strike up conversations with these folks, and what I quickly realized was that this image I had of timber workers being indifferent to nature or not caring about nature was completely misguided. A lot of the, all the folks I spoke to really regarded the river and the forest with a deep reverence and a deep respect. And they cared about these places very, very deeply. They saw them as sites of community and family. So many loggers I would just strike up random conversations with told me about how they had been fishing these rivers or hunting in these woods their entire lives. They had learned to fish and hunt in these places from their dads who had hunted there their entire lives and from their grandfathers. Um, so they had a deep connection to these places. And like I said, they spoke about the forest with a respect and a reverence that I thought was reserved for more middle-class outdoor enthusiasts like myself. So that's when I really said to myself, hey, there is a story to be told here, that the surface story we have produced during the Spotted Isle conflict 
wasn't really getting at the heart of the way that timber workers understood and related to the natural environment, nor was it getting to the kind of core of their environmental attitudes and their environmental thinking. So that is the story I set out to tell. Now, when I started this research, I did what everyone who starts a research project does. I went back and looked at the secondary literature, what other historians have written about timber workers. And with very, very few exceptions, if you read any of the literature about Pacific Northwest timber workers, you're going to read about scenes like this, men doing industrial labor. Now, industrial labor is an important part of the story of understanding timber workers, their experiences, their history, as well as their relationship to the natural environment. But again, those conversations I had were all with timber workers who were engaged in recreational or subsistence activities. So I said to myself, like, yeah, I'm going to talk about industrial labor, but that can't be the entire story. So where my book differs from a lot of other books on the Pacific Northwest timber industry is I spend a lot of time looking at places like this. This is where most early 20th century timber workers and their families lived. This is a typical company town. This particular one is in Grays Harbor, Washington. Um, but they all look very similar to this one. So when I teach my Pacific Northwest history class, I'll put up you know, images like this on the screen, ask students to think about you know, what was life like for people living in these towns. And just by looking at this picture, you can get a sense that this was a very rugged and rough life. These logging towns, by necessity, were located deep in the hinterland of the Pacific Northwest. You know, this is an era before there are, before there's widespread car ownership, definitely an era before highways. Really, the only way to get into the woods to conduct logging operations was through railroads. And so most of these small little towns are one, two, sometimes even three or four days away from a major metropolitan area. And that's where logging was taking place. So these towns had to be out there. And because they are so geographically remote, there's not a lot of amenities, nor are there a lot of services. And indeed, the employers who ran these towns really didn't provide a whole lot for their employees, nor their employees' families. So really, to survive, workers and their families have to look to the woods in order to sustain themselves. Things like berry picking, hunting, fishing, um, these become crucial subsistence activities that really allow timber workers to sustain themselves. And this becomes a big part of how they know and understand the forest and its importance in their life. Yes, the forest is a place of work for them, and that work is really, really important to how they make their living. But the forest is also an important place of, like I said, subsistence and recreation as well. Again. You can just imagine by looking at this picture, right? There's no fancy recreation halls. Employers are barely providing houses that you know, protect workers from the element. They're not providing any recreational opportunities. So the forest becomes a really, really important recreational opportunity or recreational space as well. Um, I kind of had this aha moment when I was conducting the research for this book. I was reading um, a good collection of oral histories done with workers who um, worked and lived in Shevlin, Oregon, which was a logging company town near kind of where Bend is at. And again, that company town of Shevlin looked very similar to this one, very kind of ramshackle houses. The houses leaked when it rained. 
um, didn't provide very much protection from the elements. And I'm reading, and the interviewer asks one of the interview subjects, like, oh, what'd you do for fun? And the interview subject says, like, oh, I always looked forward to the summer shutdown. So typically, especially in the early 20th century, logging operations would shut down in the summer as a way to mitigate against fire. Because essentially, logging equipment creates a lot of sparks, a lot of things that cause forest fires. So we don't have periods of you know, rain and the forests dry out, fire incidence increases. So during the summer, you know, late July, early August, companies, especially in kind of central Oregon, would just shut down for the summer. And this guy says, oh, I always looked forward to the summer shutdown. You know, me and the family, we would go high, uh, backpacking and camping for three weeks straight. And I read through that and I didn't think of anything of it. I was like, oh yeah, I like the camp too. I look forward to periods when I can go camping for a couple weeks. Uh, and then a couple days later, I'm just like walking down the street and all of a sudden it hits me. It's like, wait a second. They're living in houses that look like this. My modern tent that's all waterproof probably provides more protection from the elements than these houses. And yet, when they had the opportunity for recreation, they didn't go to Bend, I mean, which wasn't all that much of a town at, the, at that point. Oh, but they didn't go to Portland. They didn't go to some kind of metropolitan center where they might enjoy you know, some more modern conveniences. No, they went camping. Um, so again, that spoke to the importance of the forest in their life. And it was after encountering enough stories like that where I came up with this argument that becomes really central to the book. And it's that timber workers began to believe that the forest supported them in multiple ways, through employment, but also through subsistence and recreation. And they began to believe, or what I call in the book, they began to develop a sense of stewardship and an ethic of place where they believed that they had an obligation to protect the many uses and values of forests. Um, the forest was, like I said, more than just a workspace for them. It was a community space. It was a social space. It was a recreational space, and it was a subsistence space. Um, here are just some other pictures I have of kind of early 20th century company towns. And I love these pictures because it really kind of flies in the face of what we think of when we think of loggers, right? We think rough, rugged, tough men, which is not entirely inaccurate, but this was also very much, you know, these were community spaces. And, you know, when I talk about supporting a family through hunting and fishing and foraging, uh, that's because most timber workers had families, and so supporting the family through using the forest became really important, and therefore protecting the forest as a means of both subsistence and recreation became really important to timber workers as well. So these pictures are all in the book, too. Um, I like that picture. I also really like this picture. It's just a kids at a schoolhouse uh, in a Simpson logging camp. So over the course of my research, you know, I'm reading these memoirs, these great oral histories, um, I'm conducting many oral histories myself, and all these workers and all these people who lived in logging company towns are talking about the forest as this magnificent bounty that, you know, they can go uh, just kind of walk through the woods and within a couple hours have more, you know, blackberries or more salmon berries than they can possibly carry. Um, you know, I, I got jealous of some of these loggers uh, talking about hunting and how easy it was for them to find elk or find deer. Uh, they'd say, oh yeah, you'd look, out the morning, you'd look out the window in the morning, there'd be a deer, we'd shoot it, and that was dinner. Um, yeah, all these just, just magnificent stories of, you know, all these kind of... Oh, and the other thing too is, you know, they'd say they actually had to keep their windows closed because grass would fly through the windows uh, so, so frequently. Um, so I'm like, oh, wow, this is amazing, this is great. And then it dawns on me, well, these company towns exist to facilitate logging. They're not surrounded by dense, untouched forests. Quite the contrary. 
They are surrounded by clear cuts. Um, and this kind of leads me to another really, I think, important argument in the book. And that is the way timber workers saw clear cuts, and many timber workers today continue to see clear cuts. And what I suggest in the book is that I think we'd all be better served if we started to adopt some of the ways of seeing clear cuts as timber workers. So for many of us, especially those of us who may count ourselves as environmentalists, a uh, scene like this looks really, really ugly. But that's because we've been conditioned to think of clear cuts as an ending. And in some ways, is that, in some ways that's not entirely accurate. But timber workers often today and in the past often saw clear cuts as a new beginning. What's important to understand about forests is that forests are not and have never been static spaces. They are always changing and always in motion. So we look at a scene like this, and initially it looks very alarming, very disturbing, very unsettling. But what we have to remember is that this is just a very narrow slice of time. Within one or two years, you're going to start to see new deciduous growth coming in. With another five, ten years, coniferous growth is going to start coming in. And with enough time and proper management, this is eventually going to become a brand new forest. Um, now, that transition between clear cuts and forest is really, really important for timber workers' ability to survive and thrive in the company town system. Because all those things I've talked about, deer, grouse, berries, they actually don't do very well in an old growth forest. Uh, again, because of the modern environmental movement, we've been taught to venerate and to value old growth forests. And indeed, there is a lot to venerate and value in old growth forests. But if you have a forest that is uniformly old growth, that is actually not good for wildlife ecology nor the overall ecology of the forest. Because what forests need, what wildlife need, are forests in different stages of growth. So this is a picture of the Tillamook State Forest present day. And again, for many environmentalists, this looks very alarming. You see these, you know, your eyes immediately drawn to these clear cuts that look like scars on the earth. But what I'd actually suggest to you is that this is a picture of a very healthy forest. Because what you see in this picture is a bunch of different patches of forest that are in different states of growth. So here, yes, you have clear cuts, but also, like I said, a clear cut is simply a slice in time. Pretty soon it's going to become a new forest. You also have some older stands here. Now, nothing in the Tillamook State Forest is old growth. Well, there's a whole complicated definition of old growth. None of this is quote-unquote ancient forest, we'll say that. Uh, but you have some older stands, you have some younger stands. And what this provides is actually really, really good habitat for a lot of animals. This also provides really good uh, tree growth dynamics um, because the trees don't have to compete as much for resources. Um, this also has other benefits for fire prevention and things like that. So a healthy forest is one that is in transition. And so timber workers come to realize this in the early 20th century, that clear cuts aren't necessarily bad any more than old growth is necessarily good. What they come to believe, based on their experiences of using nature in a variety of ways, is that you need an ecologically complex forest that respects the multiple uses and values of forests. And timber workers come to really develop a belief in multi-use forestry, that you need to be able to harvest lumber. You know, one of the things I always say, and one of the things timber workers always say is just, think about how much wood we use in our daily life, right? 
Wood is one of the oldest construction materials known to man, and yet it is still crucial to our everyday existence. Table is wood. There's probably wood behind the walls here. Definitely, if you live in a home, if you live in a home or apartment, there is wood being used there. My book made of, made of paper, which is wood, right? Uh, wood shows up in other places. Uh, cosmetics, paints, a lot of medicines. Um, point is, is we need wood for our society to function. So you need to harvest trees. It's impossible to have a modern society without doing so. And yet, you also need the other kind of stages of growth represented. You need growing trees, you need to replant, and you also need old growth. A healthy forest is one that is used in a variety of ways and is also represents a variety of growth stages. And this becomes really the, the kind of driving environmental political force of timber country beginning in the 1920s that carries through to the present, this belief in multi-use forestry. And what I argue in the book is that, you know, during the Depression and into the 1940s and 1950s, this desire to protect multi-use forestry or advanced multi-use forestry really becomes the driving cause of timber country's labor movement. So the union I focus on in the book is the International Woodworkers of America, or the IWA. They were a union organized by communists, mostly communists, in 1937. Um, and they're kind of your stereotypical Depression-era radical union. But what was really unique about the IWA is that they were as much a labor movement as they were an environmental movement. Yes, they did a lot to improve the hours, wages, and working conditions of their members. But they also had a real emphasis on, like I said, protecting and advancing multi-use forestry policies. And this is from an editorial in The Timber Worker, which was their major publication. And I think it's a very good summation of what in the book I call working class environmentalism. Quote, we shall unite in every honest effort to save the forest. Real conservation, selective logging, sustained yield, reforestation, fire prevention, coupled with union recognition, Union wage scales mean sustained prosperity in the lumber industry for all. So that's a really good kind of summary of the IWA's vision and one of their kind of main political goals is creating a long-term sustainable forest industry based on multi-use forestry policies that will provide good jobs for working class people as well as recreational and subsistence spaces as well. And beginning in the post-World War II period, the strategy that the IWA arrives at, and this was surprising when I learned it, and it's surprising when I talk about this project to a lot of people. The solution that the IWA arrived at to kind of support this goal of creating a system of multi-use forestry was by protecting and expanding wilderness areas in the Pacific Northwest. And the IWA became a huge supporter of wilderness areas. And their reasoning was that if you have wilderness areas, which is to say areas that are locked up and prohibited from any sort of harvest activity, that is to say no lumberman can go in there and cut any trees whatsoever, what that will do is first and foremost, that'll preserve those spaces for recreation and subsistence opportunities, as well as wildlife habitat. What it would also do, the IWA believed, was by reducing the supply of available timber through wilderness designations, employers and landowners would be forced to harvest their existing stands more sustainably. 
So really the IWA believed that wilderness and expanding wilderness was the key to creating a sustainable logging, both an economically and ecologically sustainable logging system for the remainder of the 20th century. And so that was one of the first things that surprised me when I, when I discovered it, was that the IWA was, was you know, adamantly pro-wilderness. Um, the other thing that surprised me was that in making this argument about wilderness, they actually found a partnership with what at the time was a nascent environmental movement. Generally speaking, environmental historians don't really call the environmental movement the environmental movement until the 1960s. What came before any sort of environmental activism that came before is sometimes called the wilderness movement or the conservationist movement or the preservationist movement. We don't have to get into the weeds on those questions. Uh, the point is, is that early wilderness activists had a very, very similar view to timber workers about how forests should be managed. And that formed the basis of a really strong partnership. Uh, so this is Howard Zonizer here. Uh, he is an important, important person in American environmental history. He was the long-serving president of the Wilderness Society, and he was also one of the architects of the 1964 Wilderness Act. Here's what Howard Zonizer says, quote, Our hope in preserving areas of wilderness free from lumbering is dependent on our ability to achieve a prosperous lumbering industry based on sound timber management within the forests and woodlands outside the wilderness. So, put that quote up here for two reasons. Uh, first reason is, Zonizer sounds exactly like a timber worker, saying we need wilderness, we need a prosperous lumber industry outside that wilderness. Second reason I put this quote up here is, it's a little teaser of something that's gonna come later, so just remember this quote as I continue to talk. Um, so, together, working together, wilderness activists and the IWA, helped enact some wilderness designations that remain in, an important part of the Pacific Northwest today. Uh, the IWA was involved in the creation of Olympic National Park. And then in the 1950s, you can see there's some extension areas that were added to the park later. In the 1950s, there were proposals to essentially lop those off from the National Park and open them to logging. The IWA and the Wilderness Society together, this really strong, important coalition, successfully fended many of those challenges off, helping to preserve Olympic National Park as it exists today. Uh, likewise, one of the kind of famed and beloved wilderness areas in Oregon, Three Sisters Wilderness, uh, that was created in the 1960s. And again, it is a result, well, I mean, the story of the uh, Three Sisters Wilderness is complicated. Talk about it in the book. Uh, point is, the Three Sisters Wilderness exists today primarily because of the efforts of the IWA and the Wilderness Society, who put pressure on Congress in order to protect many of these areas. Um, and one of the, the points I raise in the book, and why I argue that timber worker support for wilderness was so important, was because whenever there would be you know, a, an attempt to designate a new wilderness or expand a wilderness area, employers and private landowners and big timber companies would always come and say, oh, you're going to disrupt the economy of Oregon, you're going to cost too many jobs by, by doing this. But the IWA would always come out and say, no, actually no, our research shows that this is not going to cost jobs. And there's a few cases where the IWA said, you want to know what? Our research shows it might cost a few jobs, but whatever jobs are lost are going to you know, pale in comparison to what we gain by protecting wilderness and preserving wilderness. So the IWA, like I said, played a really pivotal political role in many of these debates because they could counteract or 
provide counter evidence um, to this idea that wilderness was going to cost jobs. Um, and again, they were speaking for workers. Um, and the kind of high point of this partnership between wilderness activists and uh, the IWA came in 1964 with the passage of the Wilderness Act, uh, which essentially, Wilderness Act, arguably one of the most important pieces of environmental legislation in American history. It made it easier to uh, expand wilderness or designate wilderness areas. And again, the IWA played a critical political role by being able to counter any claims made by employers that wilderness would cost jobs. Uh, so this is just uh, President L. Harding, who was the president of the IWA in the 50s when the Wilderness Act is being debated. Uh, and this was testimony he gave before Congress, quote, if Congress does not act, future generations will hold us responsible for having cheated them as part of their birthright as Americans. Okay, so we're in the 1960s. We got environmentalists or wilderness advocates and workers partnering together. We got workers in support of wilderness. What the hell happens? Um, and as we all know, things are going to change, right? I started this talk off with a discussion of the spotted owl conflict. Uh, conflict, right? Uh, Pacific Northwest is going to be embroiled in environmental conflict for much of the later 20th century. Well, what happened? Um, so what I argue in the book is that in terms of how timber workers saw the forest, there's remarkable consistency between the early 20th century and the later 20th century. Timber workers continued to believe in multi-use forestry. They continued to believe that you needed wilderness alongside working forests. The bigger changes were both demographic and cultural. So let's start with the demographic changes. The big thing that happens in the 1960s is that we get the birth of the modern environmental movement. Owing to things like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring or the first Earth Day, uh, the modern environmental movement is born. And modern environmentalists, as opposed to wilderness advocates of a decade or two earlier, are mostly coming from urban areas. Especially in the Northwest, they're coming from Eugene. They're also coming from Portland and Seattle. Um, now this matters for a bunch of reasons. Reason number one is these folks tend to, they tend to be more middle class and they tend to have a lot more time and disposable income, which means that they tend to view nature, or at least nature that exists outside of urban areas, as primarily a recreational space. So this whole idea that Howard Zahnheiser, remember I said, remember that quote of Howard Zahnheiser? The whole quote, the whole idea of Howard Zahnheiser's, that we need wilderness alongside working forests, wasn't necessarily shared by these folks, because when they were going out in the forest, what they wanted was pristine landscapes, they wanted these hiking trails winding through old growth forest. They did not want to see clear cuts. So they're less willing to accept this idea of multi-use forestry than wilderness advocates of just the generation prior. The other big issue of workers coming, or excuse me, environmentalists coming from urban areas is that they are very unlikely to actually know or interact with timber workers. So I talked about Howard Zahnheiser. He actually came from rural Pennsylvania. He came from Pennsylvania coal country. He grew up in a rural community, and he understood that rural people cared deeply for the environment. A lot of other early kind of wilderness advocates of the early 20th century, among them Aldo Leopold. Leopold was a forester who worked for the Forest Service, and he would end up having some very strident critiques of the US Forest Service. 
However, as a forester, he oftentimes worked alongside timber workers, and he again knew that they valued the forest in multiple ways. But these folks, like I said, are less likely to know an actual timber worker, or at least they're no, unlikely to know a real-life timber worker. Instead, most of what they come to believe about timber workers <laughs> comes from popular culture. So I talk about a bunch of different kind of cultural products in the book, but the one I spend the most time talking about is you know, the, the obvious one. Ken Casey's sometimes a great notion. Um, and if any of you have read that book, um, you know that the Stampers, the main character, the main family uh, in that book, they do not come off or they are not cast in a very, very good light. <laughs> they come off as angry, as bitter, as desperately trying to hold on to an outmoded frontier mentality as the world around them changes and they are angry and they themselves refuse to change. I mean, really sometimes a great notion is at its heart a family tragedy. It is the tragedy of this family who is stuck in the past and unwilling to get with the future. And again, sometimes a great notion was the most popular cultural product dealing with Northwest timber workers that comes out of the 60s and 70s, but it's not the only one. And a lot of those cultural products portray timber workers exactly the same. These are people who are stuck in the past and not going to change. And so that has a very powerful political impact on environmentalists. They don't know a real timber worker, they know the stampers. And they say, the stampers aren't going to change, so these people can't be reasoned with, these people can't be partnered with. Now, for their part, timber workers are also turning to their own new cultural products, ones that become equally dismissive and distrusting of environmentalists and urbanites. Uh, so my arguments in this kind of part of the book borrow a lot from a lot of recent literature on kind of working class culture, particularly white working class culture, in America in the 60s and 70s. And what several scholars have argued and looked at is that you know, country music really provides the soundtrack for the white working class revolt that leads to a lot of the politics that we see among the white working class today. This was where some of the kind of things that we would recognize as you know, Trumpism or modern populism are first articulated. Uh, Merle Haggard is the one kind of country singer who's always kind of cited in this literature. And indeed, Merle Haggard would have been popular in timber country. But even more popular was this guy, Buzz Martin. He was kind of, you know, I call him the Merle Haggard of timber country. Um, and like Merle Haggard, his, he articulated a rural populism in his music, one that spoke with pride about timber workers and the kind of verity of rural life, and one that also articulated a distrust of any sort of outsider and a distrust of urban people and environmentalists in particular. And the title of my book, Strong Winds and Widowmakers, actually comes from a Buzz Martin song. Um, and I'll explain why I chose that title a little bit more in the book. Um, so the point is, though, is that culture is really important to understanding how this partnership between workers and environmentalists dissolved. Um, because popular culture helped articulate new identities, and more than that, it helped make each side distrustful of the other. And again, and this, this happened roughly 10 years before anyone had ever heard of the Spotted Owl. Essentially, popular culture is creating new dividing lines which are going to manifest in the Spotted Owl conflict. And here I have two quotes that I think illustrate what had happened in timber country, how a new cultural divide ran through the Pacific Northwest, putting rural workers on one side and environmentalists on the other. 
So on the left here is a quote by Betty Dennison. She was the president of Oregon Women in Timber, which was a trade organization, and this is her speaking in 1980 in words that sound like they could have come from kind of a modern-day populist. Quote, you produce and they consume. They are parasites and you are creators. They had been brought up in remote cities, unaware of the need for basic resources, unaware that their comfort and affluence is paid for not just with their desk jobs, but ultimately by the sweat of your brow. Right? So you can already see that timber country, at least Denison speak, to the extent that Denison speaks for timber country, is already angry at you know, the rural Northwest and environmentalists. And you flip over to the environmentalist side and things don't get any better. Quote, I personally look around at a lot of these loggers and I feel sorry for them. They're uneducated. They're crude. They're not people I would choose to be around. I don't think there's a defensible reason to keep these people doing what they're doing and in their state of ignorance. That's the environmentalist speaking. So you can see, um, like I said, uh, so again, this quote comes from 92 once the spot all has already started. Um, I'll put it up there because it's a powerful quote. But you find these sorts of quotes even before the spot all conflict emerges. Um, and, and so what I argue in the book and what I suggest is that the real problem here is cultural more than anything. You know, in terms of actual environmental attitudes and policy, yes, there are differences between the rural Northwest and the urban Northwest, between timber workers and, you know, urban environmentalists. There are differences. However, both sides have a common respect, admiration, and love for the forest. And rather than focusing on their similarities, because of popular culture, their differences were instead accentuated. And this really, like I said, set the stage for the Spotted Owl conflict. Now the Spotted Owl conflict, how the Spotted Owl emerges as a major you know, point of contention is, as you might imagine, a very complicated story having to do with Forest Service policy, Bureau of Land Management policy, environmental, the politics of the environmentalist movement, the politics of the timber industry, lobbyists. There's a lot of moving parts, um, and I do my best to make it all manageable uh, within the book. Um, and again, if I was going to actually give you the causes and origins of the spot all conflict, we would be here at least through the weekend. Um, <laughs> it's a complex story. Um, but really, for me, the important point and what I emphasize in the book is that you know, if there was a cultural conflict that emerged in the 1970s, the big result of the Spotted Owl conflict is that urban environmentalists win and timber country loses. Um, and that was a, a problem for a host of reasons. Uh, but one of the biggest reasons is the way that the debate got framed was through the lens or through the eyes of kind of more middle class folks and more environmentalist folks. And the way they framed it was jobs or the environment. But if you kind of pay attention to what I've been saying, September workers always resisted that dichotomy from the 1920s. They wanted a multi-use forestry policy, one that made space for jobs and forestry protections. And so because of the way the, you know, because essentially the, the urban middle class won this war, this cultural war, uh, they controlled the framing. And the framing of the conflict emerged in such a way that timber workers' ideas and attitudes got completely lost and completely unheeded in forest management decisions as Congress, as the President of the United States, as local um, politicians tried to solve the spot of conflict. Uh, so this is Wilbur Heath. 
Um, he was president of the Associated Oregon Loggers, which was a trade group for independent contract loggers. Uh, he passed away two years ago, but I got the opportunity to interview him before he passed away. Um, and he kind of achieved some national notoriety or became a face of the timber conflict or the timber wars uh, because in 1991, Life magazine put him in uh, their year in pictures. So that's Wilbur. That's a spotted owl. Her name's Hazel, um, or was Hazel. Spotted owl and Wilbur Heath have both passed away. Um, but, you know, Wilbur, he was very proud of this picture. He was very happy with this picture. But one thing he told me when we talked was he just hated this, the way that the copy that they put in the, the spread in Life magazine. You know, it says, endangered species, an owl and a logger symbolize the nation's tough choice, jobs or the environment. He's like, no, it doesn't have to be jobs or the environment. You know, Wilbur Heath, even though he was speaking to me in the, you know, 2010s, was speaking the same way that IWA members spoke in the 1940s and timber workers and their families spoke in the 1920s. We don't have to choose. Here's, one of the, he's, here's what Wilbur said to me. He's like, I didn't hate the owl. I didn't hate wilderness. You know, Heath, like a lot of timber workers, loved being outside and loved being in the woods. Um, he had probably seen and encountered more spotted owls than many of the people trying to save them. Um, and really, he, or he said to me, it's really, I think we could have come to a pretty, pretty good compromise. And Heath really, that was one of the big regrets and sadnesses, at least as he expressed it to me, of this time period. He's like, we could have compromised. Yeah, there were differences, but we could have found some sort of compromise that allowed us to protect spotted owl habitat and protect jobs in timber country. But as it was, that is not what happened. Um, so again, the way the, the spotted owl conflict wraps up, very complicated. I narrate some of it in the book. Uh, but to summarize for you briefly, Spotlight Conflict ends with the Northwest Forest Plan, which is a plan implemented by the Clinton administration that more or less removes most, pro or most public land from logging on the western side of Oregon and Washington. It was essentially mandated or, you know, it was basically the administration mandating preservation. Now go back to what I said earlier that a healthy forest is one that has multiple stages of growth going on at the same time. You have some areas completely clear of trees, whether that's through a clear cut or whether that's through a fire or landslide or something like that. And then you have various sections of the forest in different stages of growth. That is the way the forest ecology had long functioned, well, well, well before there was ever anything resembling an industrial timber industry. But by mandating preservation, or essentially by mandating a hands-off approach that has had plenty of negative social and ecological consequences. Um, and you know, what I say in the book, and what I'll say here too, is really what we are living with in today's forests are the consequences of not listening to timber workers who could have given us some other ideas about forest ecology and how to manage them. Um, so one of the big developments that happens as a result of the Northwest Forest Plan is, and I've read a lot of foresters who kind of say this is something that's unprecedented in at least recorded history, is that timber mortality has started to exceed timber growth. Um, essentially, trees are dying faster than they're growing back because they're not being cleared through either natural or human-involved processes. And this has had a host of other ecological effects, none of which are good. Um, now again, I'm always careful when I talk about this stuff because any time you're talking about the ecology of the forest, you have a lot of moving parts and a lot of moving pieces. 
and it is not always easy to sum up. That being said, things like the rise in incidents of forest fires or bug infestations or kind of large massive die-offs, this has a lot to do with the way the Northwest Forest Plan implemented a kind of preservationist approach. Now again, forest fire that has much as to do with climate change as anything else. Bug infestations also have a lot to do with climate change. So Northwest Forest Plan isn't the only problem here, but it is one part of the problem. And again, because we didn't listen to timber workers in these debates, we are seeing the ecological effects. And that's not to necessarily say timber workers would have solved these problems, but I think there'd be more diversity in management. Could you, that graph, could you explain a little bit? Yeah. yeah. So, okay, so the green line is, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, the green line is net growth. That's how much the forest is growing on average. Okay. The red line is mortality. That's how many trees are dying per year on average. And the blue line is harvest. Um, so you can see, you know, the... And what year? Oh, 52, 62, 76, 86, 96, 2006, 2011, 2016. So the Northwest Forest Plan is implemented in the late 90s, right around here. And you can see right when the Northwest Forest Plan is implemented, you start to see a shift of mortality going up. Harvest staying exactly the same as it was mandated by the Northwest Forest Plan and growth going down. So essentially, the forest that we're living in today is a product of everything that comes to the right here. And like I said... Mortality going up, growth going down. Uh, that is sort of about yes, yeah. so. Right, so the ecological consequences of not listening to timber workers, we're feeling those today. As we are the economic consequences, or at least people in rural communities. Um, as a result of the decline of timber harvests um, at the conclusion of the spotted owl conflict, unemployment rapidly rose in rural Oregon and rural Washington. Um, at the same time, this is uh, timber payments. There's a complex system that Oregon and Washington, actually most Western states have, where counties that have a lot of public lands in their kind of county boundaries are given payments from timber sales as a way of, to make up for the fact that they can't collect property taxes on public lands. And so a lot of rural counties had been funding social services and policing services and all sorts of really important municipal functions through timber payments. But as a result of the decline of public land timber harvests, those payments more or less end. There were some attempts to kind of backfill these through Congress, but they haven't had much financial support. Um, it's not so much important that you understand uh, the specifics of this graph. What you need to understand is that there's been declining financial support for timber country and a overall declining um, economic landscape in timber country. Um, and as many of us who pay attention to contemporary politics know, environmental acrimony and environmental disputes are still, in, still central to Oregon politics in not a good way. We still have radical environmentalists protesting um, harvest, and we still have timber workers, you know, articulating a kind of sometimes scary populism um, in their response to kind of environmental regulation. So a lot of the acrimony and division, maybe not as intense or as bad as it once was in the spotted law era, but still part of our contemporary landscape. And again, the bad thing here is this prohibits anything from getting done, anything effective from getting done in terms of environmental policy. Um, so the book ends in the present, or it ends in the, the kind of 2020s when I finished writing it. Um, in most books that you read about the timber industry, they end with the spotted owl conflict. 
And what they say is that nothing important ever happened after that. Um, and I talked with enough timber workers who really implored me to tell the story of what happens after the spotted owl conflict. You know, I would say, we are still around. We are still here. We are still an important part of the Northwest. And a lot of that story has to be told. So when I wrote the book, I was committed to telling what happens after the spotted owl. And not just telling it as a story of decline and declension, even though that has to be part of the story. Also wanted to leave readers with, with some hope. And so in the last chapter of the book, I tell the story of the Southport Mill. It's a small mill in Coos Bay. And the reason I chose this mill to talk about was because this mill is owned by the daughter of a former student of mine. Um, her name is Peyton Smith, and she came up to me one day after class and said, hey, my dad owns a mill. Um, I said, hey, I want to talk to him. Um, and so I talked to her father. I also interviewed Peyton formally several times. Um, and it tells kind of the story of the, the Smiths and what they're doing. Um, and Southport was a great kind of mill to end the story on because um, they are doing a lot of fascinating things that are you know, consistent with this idea of multi-use forestry. So Southport is a very unique mill in that it can mill very small diameter lumber. What this means is that when forests are replanted, it goes through a process. You know, they plant the trees, and then they do something called a pre-commercial thinning, where they remove smaller trees to allow the existing trees room to grow. Historically, pre-commercial thinning, those trees were just scrap because they were too small to do anything with. But Southport can actually mill those trees and turn them into marketable lumber, which again, by using those trees, they are then reducing demand on other parts of the forest. Uh, Southport has also experimented with wind power and solar power in their mills. On the lands that they own, they have undertaken very aggressive replanting programs uh, to try and get a lot of formerly cut over lands back to health. Um, so like I said, even though timber country in the Pacific Northwest has gone through a lot of challenges in recent years, um, there are some signs to be hopeful and again, consistent with the entire motivation of the book, you know, I hope in telling stories like this, um, I can, you know, move the needle on making politics, environmental politics in the Northwest a little bit less acrimonious. Um, and consistent with that, I want to end with a, just a really short reading uh, from my book. Um, so this story that I'm going to tell you here, uh, it's actually what I opened the, the book with. It's in the intro of the book, which is to say, comes early on in the book, I'm not ruining anything for you, so still go out and buy the book. Um, but this story takes place on Vancouver Island. Actually, I don't think I mentioned yet that in my book, um, it's Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia that I cover. Okay, so this particular story takes place on May 29th, 1990, uh, right here on the Little White River on Vancouver Island uh, in the Sayward Valley, which is, which is right there. Um, and so the story goes that three timber fellers, Dave Luoma, Don Zapp, and Dave Morrison, they had been tasked to actually cut this. I actually took this picture. It's not very good. Uh, they had been actually tasked to cut this area. There's a, you can't see it, but there's a logging road that runs up on this ridgeline above here. And I didn't do a good job with the picture. I'm not a photographer. Um, over here, they've been tasked to cut this area. So they you know, get their gear, they hike down, they start cutting this area, and all of a sudden they find themselves in this grove of trees that is just like these massively large trees that no one knew had existed. You know, it didn't show up on any of the logging surveys when they were tasked by their foreman with going and cutting this. It's not like the foreman said like, oh, there are some really big trees here, be prepared for this. 
So they find this grove and they're like, how did no one know this existed? This, is, this place is amazing. Um, and so that's where I'll pick up the story. When Luoma, Zapp, and Morrison discovered the grove roughly halfway through their workday, they didn't even have to talk amongst themselves before they knew what they were going to do. Quote, as soon as we walked back there and saw that stand, Zapp later said, we just couldn't do it. That was it right then and there. After spending an hour wandering the elk trails that wound through the stand, the men hoisted their saws on their shoulders, checked the laces on the boots were still tight, and began ascending the multi muddy slope to their pickup waiting on the ridgeline above. They intended to return to town, tell their employer about the grove, and then say in no uncertain terms that they refused to cut it. By the time the men made it back to the top of the ridgeline and stowed their gear, the sun had fallen from its high point in the sky and dipped behind the perpetual rain clouds that cover the coast, casting an inky black shadow that made the otherwise expansive landscape feel confining. The men sat shoulder to shoulder in the cab of their pickup, quietly contemplating the possible repercussions of their actions as they headed back to town, the eerie quietness of the dusk broken only by the rattle of their truck as it bounced over the deep ruts etched into the gorse, coarse gravel logging road. Years later, Zapp would remember the tension in the moment, saying, quote, it was kind of a big risk. It was an understatement if there ever was one. Their employer, the Kelsey Bay Division of Bladell Donovan Lumber Company, was in the business of harvesting timber, not preserving it. If Luoma, Zapp, and Morrison refused to cut the stand, then they'd likely be discharged and replaced by fellers less plagued by sentimentality. The three men were risking pensions and seniority they'd earned through years of hard labor, and most of all, they were risking good jobs in a social and economic climate where good jobs were hard to come by. Across the Northwest, logging operations were shutting down and sawmills were closing. The sounds of industrial labor and economic stability that had once filled the air of the rural Northwest, the shriek of mill whistles calling people to work, the rumble of trucks ferrying freshly cut timber out of the woods, evaporated into the ether and re were replaced by the far more somber tones of rural economic decline. Shop owners boarding up their failed businesses, the desperate size of workers being handed pink slips, and the cold hum of neon signs in the windows of payday lenders. No one could say what was causing all this exactly. Fluctuations in the global marketplace, tariffs and trade disputes, capital flight, and new environmental regulations. These and dozens more, these and dozens more causes were cited as the source of the rural Northwest's economic woes. Whatever the exact reason for the crisis, though, the fact remained that this was simply no time for the men to be risking their jobs. Not when it would be difficult, if not impossible, to find another not when the company would find different fellers to do the job, and certainly not for a small 25-acre grove that until a few hours ago, no one knew existed. But Luoma, Zapp, and Morrison also knew something about the community that perhaps gave them some cause for at least guarded optimism on their return to town. A fierce independence runs through the culture of the rural Northwest. People here have long voiced a distrust of government, environmentalists, tourists, and big companies and corporations most of all. It's a culture born of their relationship to the forest. It's where many of them worked, yes, but also where they hunted, fished, and found an escape from the challenges of that work. They'd long cared for and stewarded these woods, and they often didn't take well to outsiders, any outsiders, telling them how to manage what they rightfully saw as their own. True, the provincial government owned the land, and companies owned the right to the lumber, 
But really, these forests belong to the people in ways not so easily documented on land deeds. And indeed, no sooner had Luoma, Zapp, and Morrison returned to town than the community of loggers and mill workers in Sayward rallied to their side. Their union, Local 363 of the International Woodworkers of America, promptly issued a statement saying that no union timber worker would cut that stand either, and that any disciplinary action taken against Luoma, Zapp, or Morrison would be promptly challenged. A few days later, several people from Sayward packed up tents and sleeping bags and set up a small camp in the grove, vowing to stay there until they knew the stand was safe. In the end, Bladell Donovan acquiesced and relinquished its harvest rights to the grove. Six years later, the British Columbia Parks Department made the stand a protected wilderness area. Today, it's known as White River Provincial Park, and a sign at the head of the trail that winds through the grove tells the story of the three fellers who, quote, recognized the intrinsic, intrinsic values of the impressive stand of old growth and re refused to fall any of the trees. Um, so that is a picture of them dedicating the plaque. Um, and again, if you ever get the chance to go up there, I highly recommend it. But again, I opened this uh, book with this story and I tell this story because like I said, I hope that if more people knew stories like this, we could make environmental disputes and environmental conflicts in the Northwest a little bit more productive and a lot less vitriolic and acrimonious. So thank you. <laughs>